Hello and welcome to the Dow of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art. For good measure, I am Laura Hilliger. And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded, and you can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash we are open. So today's guest is Matt Jukes, a self-described product person who is currently head of profession for product management at the UK government's Department for Business and Trade. Um, He's got a great newsletter. We've been uh, cyber-stalking Matt for a very long time, over a decade, I'm sure. Um, But his newsletter is called Public Service Internet Jobs, and he's just an all-around interesting person. So welcome, Matt. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, before we get into the first question, Matt, you've known Laura and I for quite a while. And as we said, when we were warming up, we haven't seen each other in person for maybe a, a decade. But when did you first run into Laura, do you think? So I don't remember the date, but it was it was when Mozilla Festival was still called Drumbeat and in Barcelona. I'm pretty sure that's where. I'm pretty sure um, it's when you had your first encounter with... Um, with the 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 with Phil Sturgeon as well, with my mm-hmm. my little my little mate who has become a much better person over the years, but was a right pain in the rear end back then. <laughs> um, my main memory of the of the conference though was because it was in it was in the Rambles in um, Barca, was how many um, Californian Mozilla folks who'd come over had things pickpocketed and stolen because, like, despite uh, despite all the warnings about the fact there was just about you know all the pickpocket gangs and stuff that hang around there, and they were just leaving like MacBook Airs and stuff like just sitting the, around, yeah, yeah, sitting around on on the steps and stuff when they when people were chatting. I just oh, um, yeah, it rem- it rem- it remains a um, a big memory of me. But it was a brilliant event. It was. Um, it was a big opening to me in the kind of that open community. Hmm. And it was never quite the same when it moved to London, I thought, much as it was like... We were at MozFest House, which we'll get into maybe in Amsterdam, okay. um, week before last as well. Okay, um, okay. And you and I worked together, I think, the f- I kind of knew of you, but the um, we worked together at JISC um, yeah. in different services for, for a bit. Cool. So our first question is always what is your favorite book and we might let you sneak more than one in here so here we go yeah, i'm gonna cheat because how can you not so i did an english degree so how can i not cheat <laughs> so when i'm trying to impress somebody on a date or something i always talk about i wrote my dissertation on um on the great gatsby so all, I, so i so there was a time in my life where i knew an a, enormous amount about f scott fitzgerald um, I used to read The Great Gatsby every year for ages until my mid thirties, probably. Um, but that's but to be honest, that kind of that's just what I'm trying to show off a little bit, and it particularly <laughs> works in America, not surprisingly. Um, most recently, like a like an enormous amount of people, I loved that um, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow book. Well, it was somewhere um, by Gabrielle Zevin. It was a novel about a year. I guess it's about a year old now. Um, it was a it, it was a really weird bestseller because um, it, it's a fiction book about two friends who create video games in the kind of um, right. It's a little bit like if you've ever seen um, *Halt and Catch Fire*, the TV show. It's kind of a novel version of that. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's like kind of one of them is autistic. There's a kind of a romance follows them through their life. It's got a got a pretty blunt ending, but it's it's a it's a beautiful book. Um, um, yeah, it was a really, really weird surprise hit. Like I properly did the whole "don't judge it, but by a cover." But I bought it because of the cover. Essentially, <laughs> okay. like I knew nothing. It's kind of got a, like silver shiny, but then it ended up being you know, Reese Witherspoon spoke about it on like Instagram or something, and it ended up being this massive international hit off the back of that. Oh, um, and then my other cheat one on a slightly more work thing, which is a weird one, is. Um, a friend of mine who was one of the founders of um, GDS, um, Russell Davis, he wrote a book last year or the year before called Everything in Life I Learned from PowerPoint. Um, uh, yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. it's this amazing book in like a little hardback that is in landscape. And so every, every page is kind of a slide deck page. 
And but it's this amazing thing about teaching you how to present better the history of PowerPoint and presentation, um, s- storytelling. It's just as, like it's it's the it's the book I've bought most copies of to hand out to people, mm-hmm. and kind of leave in different offices and stuff. It's, well, it's, there's no better recommendation than books that you buy and give to other people. Yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, it's been it's a it's a it's a real winner because it um it's it the, the format tricks people into learning a little bit because mm-hmm. it looks mm-hmm. kind of fun. It almost looks like a big kids book in the in the way it's laid out, and every page is kind of colourful and that sort of thing. But um, it's incredibly useful because. Particularly in government, everyone's so bad at presentations. Oh, right. So, and everyone blames PowerPoint, whereas it's just like actually, it's not the it's not the app's fault. You know, it wasn't designed to put eleven hundred words on a slide. <laughs> yeah. reality. I I I don't think it's just government though. I think it's um, yeah. also NGOs have that issue. I've noticed that uh, you know yeah. we do tons of charity work and uh, the well, bad well, the bad presentation. Yeah. 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 Like I group all of them in my head together. So like when I talk about government, I'm automatically folding in like big international NGOs, like places you've worked in the past and stuff and charities and higher education and all these kind of non-profit, similar kind of people, all a bit too smart for their own good. Um, and think magically that it's like copy and pasting stuff from Word into PowerPoint suddenly makes it more like accessible for people hmm. you know, without making any changes why let's just dig into that why is that why are people so bad at communicating ideas is it like a school thing or is it just a you've always been a smart person and people have always listened to your ideas and then why wouldn't they listen to them now no matter what kind of crap you put in front of them some like, of it some of it's education some of yeah. it is the nature of you know like you you know you did your doctorate and stuff i mean like you you success is also is kind of wrapped up in into being incomprehensible for anyone else <laughs> to a certain extent in in a kind of in in a lot of our education in this country and elsewhere um some of it is also the is the is a, is a fear of lack of control so when you do it particularly when you do a slide deck in a big ngo or big government or anywhere large really like I do it, you know my slides tend to be just enough for me to remember what I was supposed to say on a slide mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of people, what they're scared of is those slides getting out of their control. Right. So if not, if everything they didn't think isn't on that slide somehow, they're worried they're being misinterpreted or misconstrued if it if it gets out into the world. So they try to make every like land everything on the page, uh, okay. sort of thing. Okay, I um, tell you what I found really interesting recently, and we're kind of this season is kind of touching on AI a bit. Is when there's there's times when people try and bamboozle me other people with technical stuff and what i found is it's really interesting if you take that and put it into chat gpt and say what does this person mean <laughs> it's like um it sometimes it comes out with gibberish in which case you, you kind of surmise that the person doesn't know what they're talking about but sometimes it's really quite useful because then you can talk back to them um, it's almost like translating into a different language it's cool and it is a different, and it is a different language, and that's, and that's a big part of it. Is a lot of this stuff that we do, is 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 the translation between data scientists or technologists and policy people or operations people or the public or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. like everyone's got their jargon, and this and like tech's bad, but like everything's bad. Like every every profession has its own shibboleths that try and you know that are used to, t- to see if you're one of the gang. Mm-hmm. You know, we're you know we're just slightly trendier in kind of tech at the moment, I guess. Like people, it's easy to have a poke at us. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but like we've always done that, haven't we? Like I, a good part of my success at Jisk back in the day was was making a load of stuff up on the spot, but no one no one was sure whether they could pull me on it or not. So you know, and that's 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 how you get things done to some extent as well. For sure. That's our. That's basically uh, all three of us. Our job is to make things up without people realizing that it just came out of our heads and translate it so that it sounds like a real thing. I mean, Bullshitting is a service. That's, I mean, that's this is crazy, but also part like, for all three of us. Our job is also to be to be that interface as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. to let some because my running joke is I'm terrified every time I see a tech story on the front of the Economist. Because mm-hmm. that's my week gone. 
my week is gone from from somebody senior having read that and believing that that's the future every uh, every time. And it is the Economist. Yeah. It's not the FT or anything like that. It's the Economist now. Right. Like if the Economist gets behind something, then then you've got to read that. You, a you've got to go and buy the Blooming Economist and read that story, and then you've got to, you've got to have the case about actually look, it's a it's a great idea, but yeah. Um, and so I get I get perceived as being the um, like negative Nelly now. You know, I'm the I'm the downbeat one because I'm because I have to constantly tell people that's that actually we're not ready for that or or there's reasons why we're not doing that. Well, it was interesting. There was a, a blog post of yours which I read, I reread. Um, where you were talking about identifying with a different character um, in a story that you knew now that you're older. And I thought that might be a nice kind of interesting segue into your kind of career to date. You've had a, an interesting career so far. Um, <laughs> continued. Like, um, how did you get to where you are now? You talked about having an English degree. Like yeah. where you are now is not an obvious step from an English degree. Being in, like... I, I like I've given I gave a talk last week or the week before to students in like sixteen and seventy year old students in Exeter at some college and and it's part like it, it's a fun story but it's also an unhelpful story mine in mm. that like it was, it was all about being at the right place at the right time and being the right age to some extent mm-hmm. you know like I did an English degree or I did English I did a joint degree English and history um, had every intention of being a teacher that was my goal. Um, had a ha, took a year after my degree, um, but had been accepted to do, to do my PGCE, and got a job at, um, at a university library, which just like I like I'd been working like at a Tesco's, um, stacking shelves, and I thought I needed to get a bit more experience before I went in to do my my PGCE. Um, so I got a job at, at the at the education library of. Uh, of the university I was going to go to, to do, to do the qualification. And then I really liked it, but in a case of kind of hilarious research, reverse sexism, they just, it was 97. They just assumed I understood the internet. I had no (laughs) clue. Like I'd handwritten my dissertation. Like, you know, like I couldn't even use a word processor. So they put me in charge of, like they were building a little resources website for the library, I got put in charge of that. I got in, pro- in charge of teaching students how to use like um, Alta Vista or whatever it was at the time, like internet search rather than the kind of CD-ROM search that libraries. So I was literally taking books out of the library to read and then going in the next day and pretending that, that I knew stuff. So that's how I, that was the beginning. Um, and then I bounced around a little bit doing kind of always a webmaster and an intranet manager and that sort of thing. Um, and then the the big change was I got a job first for the Economic, Social, Economic and Social Research Council as their web manager. I did that for a while and that got me the GISC job. And the GISC job was my, was so GISC used to stand for the Joint Information Systems Committee, but it's basically a, um, a, a kind of arm's length body funded eventually if you go far enough up it ends up being dfe or something but it was it was basically about helping fund infrastructure and e-learning across higher education and a bit of further education and i joined just at a time just before doug i think where they suddenly um almost mistakenly got all this extra funding so they they've made a funding request to the government, like everyone does in spending reviews. Everyone puts in much more than they want, thinking they will only get a certain percentage of it. Just got everything they asked for and then got more. So there was this, this huge drive, like recruitment drive. All of the services got much bigger. There became this real demand to um to do new things. Like there was this like where people had to spend the money kind of thing. So any idea I came up with, they just they just signed off basically. Like I, you know, I got them to build a blog network for ev- for everyone who was funded. So we, we, that, we were that was that, it's, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that was really important. And you know, the fact that you it was mandatory to blog about yeah. your funded project was a huge deal because even now you can go back and you can find like people talking about oh we're doing this at the moment rather than just what they presented at the end 
yeah, really yeah. Useful. it was like it's one of my proud like after all these years i mean it was one of the first wordpress multi-sites I mean, it was it, like it would not pass security tax checks these days. I mean, it was a bit iffy, um, but yeah. But like that thing about getting everyone to have to blog, making it giving everyone a free service so they could do it, and a bunch of other stuff we did around the edges was was really fun. And then I kind of bounced around, like did a failed startup and a few other things, um, all of which were were great fun. And then again, I just ended up back in government or on the edges of government, just when GDS started, when government digital service, and that was this massive radical change about a decade ago or something. Um, suddenly working in the open was like was mandated again, like working agile was mandated, like you had to do user research. All of these things that I've been kind of talking about but not really landing or landing in quite small ways. Suddenly you couldn't get funding for a government project unless you did did it. So it, and then and I was somebody who had, because of all my blogging and all the talks and stuff, like landed with this this awareness of that way of working. Um, so I just had this built-in kind of support from the start from people. They just assumed I knew what I was doing. I just got trusted with much bigger projects than I should have been, really, from the very start. Like I rebuilt, like I led, I built the team and led the work that completely rebuilt all of the Office for National Statistics stuff in the UK. So built a new website, built new data engineering, new data visualization teams, hired everybody, changed all the ways of working, brought in user researchers and agile and presented to chief economists at the FT and the, and the, the firm sec of the treasury and did all this, you know, showing up in my hoodie and my Adidas trainers and to all these important places. And it just got, just got trusted and you know it was brilliant and that's and i've been living on it ever since really it's kind of bouncing along off this kind of slightly mythological memory of the things i did eight years ago i now. think that's it yeah go on, i think it's well i was just gonna say i think it's really interesting because um you know most of the guests that we have on the dow of wow are people that come from our network people we've known for a long time not necessarily worked really closely with but people we know from their work in the open and it's really interesting because when we when we talk to our guests, the the thing that kind of a through line for me is how much luck uh, right. and being in the right place at the right time, but also a you know a, a deep intellectual interest in the intersection of technology, society, philosophy, art. Um, you know the the you know you're talking about building networks before we were before the academic community was really clear on how digital networks you know, what kind of benefits they have, like, like what a community of practice actually means to the people involved in society at a, you know, a larger scale. And I think it's really interesting, particularly for um, work in education, this, this message that like your career, you don't just train so that you can get a job and then you have that job forever. Like, a, you know, having a career is a lot of twists and turns and ending up in places you didn't ever think that you were going to be and in communities that you maybe didn't ever really feel particularly skilled for. So like for me, you know, I consider myself a open sourcer. I don't know what else to call it. Um, but you know, and I can write some code and I can build things on, on the web, but I've never thought of myself as a developer, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like this, this, I, I feel like our field is quite diverse and it needs all different kinds of people to take those twists and turns. And it's, it's always interesting to hear. I think you're underselling yourself when you, when you say yeah, it's all sure, accident, sure. you know? No, but I think some of it, like, I think curiosity is a massive part of it. I think there's a thing where like, I was surprised, like I was, I've never been into games. I'm never like, I, you know, all these other things in tech that never, never appealed to me at all. But like I, I was fascinated with the internet and the web from the start, and I just, I was just always really curious, and so the only way I could ever learn was was to do things. Mm -hmm. Really, I do think the game has changed now, though, because I do think a lot of it's much more siloed. I think when we came through, you were encouraged to be more generalist. The opportunities to to dip your toes in lots of different things and not have to specialize um, were a lot more prevalent. Whereas now, particularly in the in, in kind of the government space, like 
you have to decide really quite early in your career are you this that or the other and then there's a and, and there's a community and there's leadership and there's opportunities and like in a lot of ways it's better because you've got that much more support hmm. i was going to say do you, is it yeah i guess it's benefits and drawbacks of of both yeah yeah, yeah absolutely i think it's like i can understand the appeal um I think it's limiting in a lot of ways. I think I think it creates silos and kind of creates um, like weird tension between professions that never really used to exist. Mm. But it also gives people a much better opportunity to come in junior and work their way up because mm. um, mm. you don't have to do so much zigzagging, you know, which which a lot of people aren't as comfortable with. It's easy for me, like you know, I'm like, I don't have kids. I've got like I've always done the right. I'm a middle aged white bloke. Like me taking risks is like you know I've got a family I've got friends I've got, like I'm like I can chop and change jobs and do mm. all these things and there's, there's never really been many consequences for me one way or another and the same as the working in the open like it's like I get to say things and do things knowing I'm not you know it's a lot easier now because of my reputation as well in my in my little corner of the internet um but I've definitely got away with murder in the past. I've got away with things that would have got other people in trouble. Um, Can I just ask a question about the reputation thing, right? Because I, I feel I don't feel like you've done this, but I, I feel like other people have sometimes painted themselves into a corner where they're seen as a um, an angry voice or a, like, um, oh, we'll go to this person for the the con, you know, the contrary view on the thing, and we'll we'll get this person on the panel because they're going to disagree with that what everyone else has said. And you haven't been that because you're more measured and um, nuanced. But have you felt that that kind of vibe sometimes in your career? Yeah, and there's, there's definitely an opportunity for it. But there's a thing like every now and again, I'll I'll write something slightly ranty about agile about the way that it's gone, that sort of thing. It, as I'm writing that, I know it will be my most views blog, viewed blog post that year, every time I do it. like I go from getting a few hundred people to getting a few thousand people straight away the minute I, I do it. And, and again, it's, it's never nasty or anything, but you know, I happen to think things have gone in a way that I wouldn't have liked, I would have preferred it hadn't in the kind of wider thing. Immediately after, I'll get more requests to give talks. Like Suddenly I won't have to pitch, I'll be asked to go to, to give um sessions and then and then i'll do a couple but then in the when i give the talks i'm not so ranty like because you, you know because you're in a room so it's a bit different and then it all goes away again whereas for the most part my i've benefited i benefited from being generous and the generosity of others so that whole kind of that earlier kind of open kind of community thing like like I tried to help out. I tried to be part of things. I tried to give my time and my, like I mentor people and I, all this sort of thing and tried to give back because I've received so much help from so many other people and the kind of digital government. So it was like that in that kind of open content, jisky world as well. But the open government thing in the last 10 years has been really about that. So like I've ended up with friends in New Zealand and America and Canada and all over the UK and, like when we all share and support each other and like you always know someone's got your back and you can, and and that's been, and the fact that I've had the opportunity to go to these countries and to take a bunch of stickers and give some free books out or whatever it might be. And it, I mean, it's difficult to know because you, you're not necessarily over there for long periods of time, but you're connected to New Zealand and America and Canada and whatever. You were over in DC recently for that Code for America Summit. Are there lots of differences between, I mean, every country has its own kind of way of doing things and culture and vibe and stuff, but is there a big difference between the way that things are done in different countries? So the reason I go to the reason I go to Code for America is because it always gives me a boost when I come back, so I think at least I'm not having to do that there. Like, America's got all the same problems as we have, <clears throat> procurement and kind of bureaucracy, and how hard it is to recruit and all these things. They've got the same problems, but they're all so much worse for America because American bureaucracy is so much more complicated. There's um, the, bureauc the uh, you know, the procurement stuff and the commercial stuff is so, like the legal elements around some of that is so much more difficult. Um, the relationship with the unions, like it's fraught enough here, but over there, like it can take three years to change a line in a job description 
mm-hmm. you know, like recruitment's really hard. Um, and all, but also, you know, the tech salaries and stuff over there for not, not even for big tech, tech for like all that next tier down, the banks and things like that is so high. Like the market in America has, has escalated those salaries, particularly for kind of software engineers and stuff, so, to such a level that government's always behind competing and tech companies can hire somebody in and kind of, you know, the whole process end-to-end can be kind of six weeks and it can be six months to get into the federal government. And, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge. So the people are lovely, they're, they're earnest and they're committed and they're incredibly smart. And I always enjoy going to these events and meeting up with them all. Um, but, like, they spend so much time just fighting to have a say, to fighting to be involved and, like, lobbying just to be a part of something. Do you, so it's been interesting with, what, the last six, eight months where you can't, you know, you can't switch on your browser or your email client or whatever without getting something about AI and ChatGPT and BARD and whatever. How's how's that been in the kind of public sector in terms of product? Is it... Are some people thinking, oh, it's just going to solve all these problems and make it, them go away in terms of getting the right people and the right processes and stuff? Or is it a bit more considered? Is it the same kind of... Do you see the same kind of problems in the product sector and public life as you do elsewhere in the tech sector? Or is it different in some way? It's a, it's a real mix even in, in the kind of public sector at the moment. So our department, we've taken a pretty kind of hands off this just see how things go approach like it's banned for use like we've made a decision as a department like no one's to use it for anything work related you can't get to open ai from our machines um like we're, we've got teams experimenting a bit and looking there but there's a real risk about just what a black box it is like how little control we've got over it and people are playing around with some of the open source llms and looking at our own training models and that sort of thing so we're in the mix at, at dbt we're looking at it and we and we're really interested um on a personal level it's the first of these new like i was not interested in metaverse i hate all the kind of you know you know crypto stuff and that it's been a really long time since something came along where i thought this might actually this might be it i'm not sure and I've got all sorts of worries about it for for all sorts of kind of ethical and other reasons and just sustainability and things as well. Like, but it's the first time I thought, oh yeah, this might like that actually, that yeah, maybe maybe for for the government stuff, particularly when it's about kind of chatbots that are about giving advice about stuff that's already written. Like it's not opinions; it's like finding a way to cut through that stuff. So we're interested and we're looking um, more widely. Ministers particularly are are like fascinated with it and are pushing departments and and digital teams and their policy people across every corner of government to to see how it can be used, um, and and that will only be more now that OpenAI have opened their London, are about to open their London office, so their first office outside of San Francisco is going to be London, um, like it's like. Rishi's already been around to say hello, kind of thing. Like you know, there's a there's a oh, lot. I'm, of I'm sure he has. Yeah, <laughs> like, there was, wasn't a, there some talk about Brit GPT or something as well. And, so yeah. there's there's a lot of people. There's, there's people looking at it. There's, there absolutely is people looking at what this what means. I just like my money is on, like for DBT, a big part. You know, not surprisingly, like a lot of what we do is provide advice about trade. Like if you want to export or you want to import. And some of that's quite dense, like our information architecture could do with some work. Search is difficult. People don't always know what they're looking for until they see it. Um, but there's, but we've got you know enormous amounts of really good content about it. Like people have worked like from the very technical to the kind of slightly more like public facing stuff, and like a load of history and you know. So in theory. We could train our own chatbot on that stuff that would allow people to ask questions and then refine their questions and and, and 
given it was only coming from our content, almost certainly, you know, in theory, get the right answer in, a, in an easier way than the current search paradigm allows them to. And I think we're, I think we're, you know, a couple of years away from that, even if everything kind of evolves in the in a good way. Mm. But just the fact that it's a possibility has got everyone a bit lively, if I'm honest. Like that's that's the thing, and it will start to change where the investment goes. I think that's the that's the interesting thing because people were people like like apps eight years ago or whatever. I mean, suddenly no one wanted to invest any money in websites for a couple of years. Everything was about apps, um, and then it kind of rolled back round when everyone realised how difficult it was to maintain the apps but yeah i can imagine the the front page of the daily mail because there's already stuff about like woke chatbots and, and all this kind of stuff um be interesting to see daily mail front pages when this stuff is rolled out across government and it's literally just you know synthesizing information on climate change and whatever but it's massively biased and it's lefty whatever and all this kind of stuff it's gonna but be- it would also be interesting because like even like last week the former head like the the previous head of hr for the whole civil service spoke at some conference and, and i can't remember what the number was but it was a lot he said something like um within two years ai will mean we can get rid of a third of civil servants <laughs> and like this is the pre- former head of hr for the civil service so so like the Daily Mail would love that, so you know what I mean. So it goes both ways. Like there, like it will, it will flip back and forth as it so often does. Like there, there is a um, a roadmap with AI that Daily Mail and Telegraph and all those people will be on board with, and there's a there's a roadmap where the Mirror and everybody will be, you know, and the Guardian will be on board with. Um. There's no evidence of either at the moment, really, to be perfectly honest. Like, like I do think the, the scariest thing is the, is the extent of it being a black box. Yeah. Like, open AI is like, it's the, you know, the, can't, the, the open is, like, for us all, you know, the fact that open AI, they are, they are, they are open now. They are, the, they are the flagship for the word open in, a, in the organisation now. And, like, they make... Apple look like Wikipedia, like yeah. no, like no one knows what's going on. <laughs> Listeners cannot see all of us rolling our eyes yeah. at the fact that it's called OpenAI. <laughs> and it's a, I mean, it's a difficult thing because like, I don't even know because of the way that the algorithms work whether they know. Like, because yeah. at a point, because of the way it, it works, like that's the point of it. Like, well, it's interesting that they're designed to sell an office in London, obviously outside of the EU given the laws that are coming in potentially, which they might not be able to comply with, so they're being close enough but not actually in the EU. Yeah, it's it's interesting times. Yeah, I think um, while you were just talking about um, a minute or two ago, um, this idea that... um, like government service could be training their own language models to answer questions about policy or, you know, to provide accurate factual information. This is a really interesting use case. I don't know if there's a word for a large language model that's only trained on one specific area, um, small language model, maybe, <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but I think that's, you know, that like as a use case, it certainly seems like there's a way you know, there's a way for us as technologists to steer AI uh, in the public sector in particular to being really useful for citizens. And the question about that black box is, is how do we, how do we get to a point where we understand it well enough to be able to actually create chatbots that are, you know, that are like listening to this policy stuff and providing factual information for citizens in a way that is, you know, transparent, op- actually open, as opposed to yeah. open and washing. Um, and trustworthy. I mean, the, the thing, the thing yeah. I would say, if we can't do that, then we shouldn't do it. And I think, I exactly. think that's the thing. Yeah. I, I, that's it. Um, I'm sure you've both come across Rachel Caldecott, like who used to um, run Dot Everything, and everything. Like, she's been writing lots of stuff about kind of, um, kind of where public service in the widest sense kind of touches AI and what some of the challenges and problems are. And, um, and, and I found, I found it really influential, like the stuff that she's saying, because it, it's a nice balance to, 
because everything else is either kind of um the end is nigh <laughs> like it's all kind of singularity and we're all gonna we're all gonna you know terminator's gonna take us out or or it's the other far end is the answer to everything and i think i think we have to find a balance somewhere in there and but i do think it's in, but like i said it's interesting like, like none of like it's the most it's the thing i've found most interesting since the web as far as kind of Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it will work. Um, the last time I, well, the social media was the last time I was really interested, and God knows that went the wrong way. Mm. So I just look at it now and think this is interesting. But also, <laughs> I'm fifty, and am I going to invest a bunch of time in in really being the person who's the voice around it? Probably not. I'm going to watch really. <laughs> <laughs> and like contribute where I can. Do you think? Do you um do you think that you say that that you know not about not being the voice around it? Do you think that part of what's going on or like a, a reason to kind of step back is because you don't feel like you know enough about AI or how the models work? Yeah. And you feel I mean, like you can't I, I mean, be that think, voice because of it? Yeah. Because yeah, of your lack I'll, of knowledge. I don't think I'll get to that either. I think the the commitment to like I uh, like I look at it from a kind of from a humanity standpoint or something at the moment. Like I like I'm interested in the efforts. I'm interested in the opportunities and that sort of thing. Like it's it's too much. It will be too much for me to really understand what's going on under the hood of it. I think like I could do it, but like the commitment to really get into it. Like I like like I'm still more interested in kind of the storytelling and the web and. You know, like I'll I'll continue to fight the corner of the the open web for the for now. Mm. I think I think that's like that's mm. been my commitment as far as these things. Um, and I guess and in the second half of your career, like one of the jobs to do is to do the harder thing, which is managing and dealing with the humans, um, because the technology sometimes. Like, yeah, you can understand it, but sometimes you can't literally understand human beings and they act in weird ways and you have to kind of understand how to manage people in such a way. I don't mean like line manage. I mean like manage situations so that things come together in good ways, which could easily go south. My job, like, I don't, like I'm not on the hook for, for a product at all these days. Like my, my product is, is the people. I've got 22 product managers of different stages of their career i make sure that they're all their well-being is okay i make sure they get the best learning opportunities i'm a sounding board where they have difficult problems i make sure that they've got the opportunities to network across government and elsewhere so that they can find solutions to their problems but but that's become that's my that's become my thing like i sell myself increasingly as this idea that like i'm a like i'm a i'm a community elder like I've been around, I've got this network, I've got all these connections, I've got no ambition. So you might as well take advantage of of, of my network. Like I can help you, I can point you, I can introduce you to people and, and that sort of thing. And that's that's what I offer my teams. And I offer the ability that I've been in every sticky situation they've been in in the last 20 odd years. So I can tell them how how they can land a presentation with a difficult bunch of stakeholders mm-hmm. or how to communicate with their tech lead, you know, and have, the, have those conversations. And, that, and, and that's the stuff that, I, that I've come to enjoy more. But the, but the more you do that and get further away from actually being the product person and actually doing any delivery, you know, at some point it just becomes all theoretical and, you, and, and so you lose impact. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm teetering these days. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to consider whether I take, you know, I do something again for a bit and actually go and. Leave and if you some don't, you have to grow your beard really long and get a stand yeah, and, and start stroking it even more. Yeah. Um, but it, it changes. You know, you have to. I never I never envisioned myself becoming a HR person, but like two weeks ago, my entire week I didn't do anything but recruitment deal with kind of capability stuff and speak to contractors like in like literally five days you know morning mm-hmm. to evening every day i just that was my pure week i didn't have a conversation about anything to do with agile or product or anything it was just about people mm-hmm. and it was a good week 
<laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to do it every week, but it was a legitimately good week. Yeah, good. Good stuff. Um, we're going to have to finish in a minute, but uh, one of the things we've got in our in our notes was that you were sharing recently on LinkedIn, of which you're reasonably active, um, that you were celebrating the celebrating in inverted commas the anniversary of a of a business trip, and I'd love it if we could weave that into this into this podcast yeah. episode. Do you want to tell the story of of that? Yeah, I guess. Just to say, I'm only on LinkedIn because Twitter is so broken now. Yeah. I don't know where else to go. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, so I was, I guess, so it was five years ago, five years in a week or something now, I guess. Um, I got, I'd been invited to speak at a conference in Wellington in New Zealand. Um, and that had happened sometime before this. And, and in the interim, after being invited to speak at this conference, I'd taken a new um, consultancy gig at the BBC um, and originally I was going to go to um, Australia and New Zealand and be gone for a bit longer but the BBC wouldn't have it so they said you can only be gone for X amount of days we really need you to be available to to lead this team I was pretty new into consultancy so I agreed I would never agree now but at the time I agreed so I um, so, so I flew to um, so I went to I went to New Zealand for seven days, basically. So I flew to I flew to LA, changed flights, got straight on the other flight, no layover. Um, got to Wellington on a Sunday, left on a Friday evening from London. Got to Wellington Sunday morning, spoke at one event on the Monday, another event on the Wednesday. Um, did something on the Thursday, maybe. Then then flew, saw some friends in Auckland. And then flew back to London, so left on the Sunday from Auckland. Um, and sometime in that week when I was in, in New Zealand, the person I was working for at the BBC said, "You absolutely, we need you in this meeting. Um, and it was a Tuesday. And I said, well, I only get back that morning. They said, we really need you. Just come in, just do this meeting. And again, it was new to consulting, so I agreed. So I landed at Heathrow showered at Heathrow, changed into the one clean outfit I had left in my bag, um, got the tube to White City, where the BBC offices are, um, was hallucinating, like seeing auras around people. I hadn't slept on the flight, really. Um, went to the meeting room. It was about five minutes early, sat down. No one showed up for the meeting. So I was there for about 15 minutes and no one came. No one dialed in, nothing. Um, and so I walked to the area where my team was, and two of the eight people who were supposed to be at the meeting were sat there, and they and they said, "What are you doing here?" And one of them was the person who told me I absolutely had to be there. Oh my days! And oh. somebody had tried to get in touch, and they did you keep off. your? Did you? Yeah, I just I was I was I like I wasn't <laughs> later that evening. I was fuming all over the place, but like there and then. Like it, like I, I realized how funny. Like I did realize it was funny there and then, to be honest, because it was just like this is so stupid. And I was still carrying my backpack, because like, I hadn't gone back to the hotel or anything. And I was living in a travel lodge in in North Acton in London at the time, because I no, because I was in because I was at BBC every day because it was before COVID, hmm. so it was before remote. So like I was literally like in this crumpled clothes that had been in a bag for a week holding on to my backpack, like, clearly wobbling. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're sorry. And so-and-so so, so, and so had tried to, tried to get in touch with you, but um, we decided not to... We decided, so two people had decided had cried off because they had trouble getting from um, Broadcasting House in London to the other office in London. So that's you, where you've come in person from New Zealand. Yeah, wow. come in person from New Zealand. But then I, I just, to be fair, I just sat down and I just sat there people talking to me i don't remember any of it for two hours so i just sat there and then i left and i went back to my, my it was, yeah so it was bad um it's a funny story now um and it was a and the bbc and i loved i loved that team i loved that bbc team apart from i never i never um my relationship never recovered from the boss who pulled me into that meeting no i can imagine, I can imagine. <laughs> you lose some respect for someone who pulls you in from across the other side of the world definitely yeah oh, like, i would be bitterness for sure yeah, and it didn't turn out to be that important a meeting like not just the fact it didn't happen yeah. the meeting itself when we finally did it oh. was just like well 
did you need me in this? Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it was just putting me in my place because I was. Like, well, it's interesting because um, even that story there, it's all about perspective on work and how important that meeting is and how important the work is and and the the advice that you give to people in your current role and in any future roles is really important. Like helping people put things in perspective, you know, especially when it looks like the shit's hitting the fan or someone's very disappointed with someone else. In the big de- in the big scheme of things, what does it matter? Feel, like w- reality is. Particularly in government digital, we we build web pages and web forms. Yeah. That's all we do. We build web pages and web forms. We build a lot of them, and some of them are complicated. But we're not being like, you know, it's not putting them out on the moon. I think we I think we get wildly carried away sometimes about our, you know, and and other people do about us about about digital. But um, we've managed to make it like it, it didn't. I don't feel like it felt this complicated ten years ago. A lot of it is the reality. Mm. Like it doesn't feel that we've simplified things. It feels like we've made everything more complicated. Um, yeah, I, I, like I miss the days you could just throw up a WordPress site and like get someone to skin it, and suddenly you have like and you, and that could be a government website. Yeah, you know, I mean, like loads of things have been great and have been really useful and really important, but um, I do miss the kind of slightly crazy days of like the early two thousands where like. Mm no one really knew what they were doing and, they, yeah. and there wasn't really much big tech and there was still some hope for social media you know yeah those were those were fun days to be honest it sounds a little bit like your ambition is curbed is that i mean is that just an experience thing and i ask because i also feel like you know 10 15 years ago i was had a very different kind of ambition than i do today in terms of i, I had quite a lot until I, I don't have a, a COVID. COVID crushed what was left of my ambition, basically. Mm. Like I had chased, I did, you know. But also, I did really well at my little shorts. Like financially, I did well at my little short spell of consulting. Like I don't have a mortgage now. Yeah, you know. And so, so that was luck. That was again, it was the right place, right time. Like I did, did nothing really to deserve it. I did a good job, but like, but I didn't deserve the money. Like a friend who was there right with me decided to hold on to his shares and they were worth loads, they're now worth loads less. Whereas I was so desperate to have money for the first time in my entire life. The minute I was allowed to cash my shares out, I cashed my shares out hmm. and that turned out to be the right decision. I had no insight. There was no like magic thing to why that was like, I would, I just was like, this is so exciting. Like, you know, I finally, like I've got money. Um, so, so that plus, you know, I, I had COVID twice. I got really ill, hit my back car, like I had a bunch of other kind of stuff that I don't talk about. And I came out of it all thinking, you know, what do I want out of this now? Like I enjoy the work. I love the community. I don't want to do anything else. But also I don't want all the stress of like beca- like chasing ever more senior roles. Because mm-hmm. I definitely have tried that. Yeah, so uh, we actually asked you on the podcast after we saw your ambitions for 2023 yeah. one of which was be a guest on a podcast so we're, <laughs> we're like ooh, matt he'll come on our podcast because it's one of the ambitions um, but the other thing about that post that i that i thought was um really interesting is is that it's not the your ambitions for yourself this year are you know, they're, they're more about like, um, finding your whole self, making sure that yeah. you're whole as opposed to like work style, quote unquote, professional ambitions. Mm. Um, yeah. so I'd love to know. Thing. Yeah. So, um, how are your other 2023 ambitions going? So all the ones that were to do with travel and kind of doing things for the most part, have gone really well. Like I had a brilliant, my 50th, I've done a little travel. I've been accepted to a couple of... Uh, I actually cancelled on a conference last week because I had writer's block. I just couldn't land the talk. But I've been accepted to a couple... So lots of it's been really well. I've not, like... I, I've kind of... I go through stages because I'm I'm really heavily into street art and graffiti and stuff like that, and I, I'm a really bad painter myself, and I go through stages. My amb- ambitions this year to paint more, and it's gone mm-hmm. exactly the other way. Like, I'm not painting at all. I've just kind of lost hmm. lost my mojo in that a little bit. Um, and I've been a bit rubbish with my health, if I'm honest. Um, 
But did I, you I get a tattoo? I did get my tattoo, which is of a spray can. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, so I mean, like, it is funny. I've had the design. I've had versions of the design since my 30th birthday. And I keep saying, and I've said I'll do it. And and it's evolved in the design, but it's always been some version of a spray can. Um, So I was going to get it done at 30th and bottled it. was going to get done at 40th and bottled it and finally got it done when I'm 50. Such a midlife crisis thing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, good. I mean, like, like I've, it's been a good year, actually. Like I didn't like I I had proper panics about not great with milestones usually, like age milestones. I kind of do this whole retrospective of my life, and I I have a little bit of a crisis each time. But fifty, it just it was just fun because like there's no expectations at this point. Like, you've kind of got to a level. No, I, I love the idea um, of of having ambitions instead of resolutions. So yeah. we're halfway through the year. It sounds like you've done a lot of the things yeah, you yeah. wanted to do. You've still got the second half for you. All and good. the best thing I did was get right, because I was obsessed with writing the book. Like, you mm-hmm. both know this. You both had these things. I was obsessed with writing a book for a really long time. And I tried, and I've written multiple chapters, and I've done stuff. But it made me miserable every year for 10 years. It was always the it was always my number one ambition. I, tried, I, came at, I did courses and came at it from different angles and bought different software and tried it different ways and went on writer's retreats and all of it. And every every year I just lost momentum. Mm-hmm. And last year I decided I wasn't ever going to make it a thing anymore. It's amazing how much happier I've been ever since. I just said I'm not going to try anymore. That, that's it, it's done. Hmm. Well, cool. Shall we um, wrap it up here? Yeah, I think we've gone for a long time. And um, yeah, let's let's definitely get Matt. I know we say this about all our guests, but I definitely want to get Matt back on at some point because there's so much stuff we haven't dug into. We took a bit of an AI lens on this and, and things, but there's so much other stuff we could we could get into, especially to do with like unconferences and how to organize those and, and that kind of thing. Because I think that's a, that's a definite skill that people get a little bit like freaked out about and think how to organize an unconference. So we could go into that next time. Um, but yeah, for now, that was a great conversation from my uh, perspective. We've gone slightly over, but I think it's all wounded and all good. I, I, look, I know what I'm like, so I, I, I booked the next half hour off as well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I well, thank you, thank you very much, Matt. Um, Here, it's will, lovely to speak to both of you. We're recording this episode at the start of July, but it won't go out for at least a month. So um, things change, the world changes, whatever. We'll put some context to around stuff cool okay well thank you very much and cheers for now thank you both cheers